before we start this morning, let's just bow our heads in prayer. Father God, as we hear from your word this morning, we pray that you would remove from us all distractions, that we might be able to hear and listen from your word. We pray that you would speak to us through your word, even through me. I ask this in your name. Amen. A number of years ago now, my work situation changed. I started consulting for employment. Now, this is something I'd never done before, so not knowing what to do really, I went to a tax accountant to find out what my obligations were as far as tax was concerned. Now, when I got there to that meeting with the accountant, he started talking to me about overseas consulting, how I must have had some in my line of work. It seemed a little strange to me because I hadn't really gotten any consulting from anyone overseas. But he continued and he kept pressing and pressing until finally I asked him, look, why do you keep asking me this question about overseas consulting? It was a tax dodge. See, what he wanted to do is he wanted to make an invoice that I had no intention of paying from a company that was overseas that I'd never heard of for work that I didn't actually receive and use that as part of my tax return, knowing full well that it was only for a few thousand dollars. If it ever came to an audit, the auditors wouldn't bother looking at it. They know that the overseas company is going to give them the runaround and it's not worth their time. Well, I was flabbergasted, really. So I explained to him, listen, no, I'm a Christian. I don't really want anything to do with anything dodgy. I just want to know what my tax obligations were. Now, his response was interesting because he said to me, suit yourself, but everything I've told you about is completely legal because the government makes it legal. This is just one loophole out of many loopholes in tax law. And these loopholes get used and abused by many. In fact, he said, pointing to a file on his desk, here's a tax return I prepared today for a company that's an overseas company that trades exclusively within Australia that in its last financial year made $6 million. And for their tax return, the government is paying them another $500,000. So, he said, you may think that your taxes go towards things like schools and roads and hospitals, but think again, because all your taxes are doing are going to these people who are rorting the system. Now, you tell me, he said, how much tax do you want to pay? Now, when I left that meeting, I couldn't help but wonder why. Why do they get away with it? Well, it's pretty obvious. If I'm going to make $6 million during the year, I shouldn't be receiving any more from the government. So why do they get away with it? And why do I have to pay? I mean, I don't want $500,000 in my tax return. I just want to provide for my own family. Why should I have to pay taxes just to line their, their pockets? It's not fair. It's not just. Now, Asaph this morning in Psalm 73 has a similar problem, though his problem is not with the government and with tax. Let's read what he has to say. If you turn your church Bibles to page 575, in verse 1 of Psalm 73, Asaph says this, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Alright, doesn't sound like he's got a problem so far, but what we have in this verse is a statement of faith and it's this one which leads to his frustration further on in the psalm. Now it's not really surprising that Asaph should say this, considering who he was and the time in which he lived. You see, Asaph was a Levite who was appointed by King David as chief musician in the temple. 
His job was to minister before the ark. And this was done at a time when the ark of the covenant was brought back into Jerusalem under David. Now he kept this position all the way through to David's death and then Solomon and Solomon's consecration of the temple. He was still the head musician. So during this time in Israel, it was a great period of prosperity. They had safety on all sides from their enemies. They were united under one king with Jerusalem as their capital and they had great wealth. So it's no surprise you should say, surely God is good to Israel, because God was. But this very statement of faith didn't ring true for Asaph, not for him personally. Let's read on in verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You see, God was not just good to Israel. The wicked also prospered. And because of this prosperity, they became arrogant. Whereas Asaph didn't prosper. He's envious because he doesn't have what they have. But see, this is not just the reason for his frustration. It gets worse. Let's read on. In verse 4, They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. See, it's not just that they prosper, but they enjoy good health. They don't have any health complaints to speak of at all. It seems even the common colds pass them by. And more than this, they even have easy deaths. Now, this doesn't come through in this particular translation, but if you read from the King James Version, verse 4 says this, For there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. See, there is no impending doom coming on these these wicked people. There's no gruesome or painful death waiting for them. They're comfortable throughout their lives as far as health is concerned. And that continues right up until the day they die. And they don't have to worry about anything. They don't have to worry about paying the rent or the mortgage. They don't have to worry about if they can eat or where they're going to work. All these things come to them. They're free from the burdens common to man. But it's not just this that annoys Asaph. Let's keep reading. It gets worse still. In verse 6, Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They're violent people and they're proud people. Even though they they indulge in the iniquity of their callous hearts, they remain proud. And their conceits are not restrained. Now a good example of this common day is the the term for the disease of the 21st century called sexual addiction. There's no disease here. What we have is men's indulging in the evil conceits of their minds. This affliction, sexual addiction, only seems to afflict those who are well off, who have the time, who have the wherewithal to do this. But see, it gets worse still. Let's continue reading in verse 8. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? See, these people truly believe that they are above everyone else and that they deserve their place. In fact, that everyone else deserves their place of servitude 
and so they oppressed to keep their position. And they, they then openly mock God himself. How does God know? What's he going to do about it? Look, I've got it good, I've got it easy and he's doing nothing about it. So the frustration is rising here for Asaph. Again, read on in verse 12. This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree, they increase in wealth. See, despite all these things, despite their arrogance, their violence, their pride, despite the fact that they oppress, despite the fact that they indulge in everything and they openly mock God himself, they continue to prosper. They continue to increase in wealth and in health. The rich get richer. Those who have much continue to get more and it's not just for a time. It's all the time, never with anything to worry about, always carefree. This is what happens with the wicked. But if that isn't bad enough, things get worse for Asaph. Read in verse 13. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. See, Asaph is not like these wicked people. Asaph is trying to do the right thing. Asaph is trying to be pure in heart and yet he doesn't even enjoy good health. He's afflicted and not just now and then, all the time, all day long he is plagued. And even then when his body finally succumbs to exhaustion, he wakes the next day in pain. I've been punished every morning. See, the wicked prosper, yet the pure in heart suffer. So is there any wonder that this all seems pointless to Asaph, that he seems to have done this in vain? And he's at the point now where he is ready to tell everyone about it publicly, if you read on in verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. See, Asaph feels so wronged and so frustrated that he's ready to walk away and to do so publicly. Now remember Asaph's role here. He was the head musician in the temple of God, the place where people would come, the very place they come to worship God. And he's ready to tell them, you've been wasting your time. What are you doing here? Can't you see how the wicked prosper? Why do you come here and suffer? It's not worth it. This is the point he's at. He's frustrated. He sees the injustice of it all. So here we are a few thousand years later. And are we any different? Has anything changed? Now if you think so, let me give you an example. Just a simple example from Australian corporate history. HIH Insurance and Ray Williams. Now if you're not sure of what's going on here, HIH Insurance was one of the largest insurance companies in Australian history and through mismanagement from Ray Williams and other people on the board, it collapsed with debts of $5.3 billion. Now because of this collapse, many people lost their homes and their life savings. So Ray Williams himself, you might think, well, hey, it's not his fault, but he was found guilty of acting improperly and put in prison for two and a half years, all right, in a minimum security prison, so a bit like a holiday camp, but not... Nonetheless, he was found guilty in his part for the collapse. Now, after the 2.5 years had finished, he went home to his $4 million home in Seaforth. 
Now that doesn't sound like much because perhaps $4 million isn't much. But this is the home in which he transferred to his wife's name shortly before the collapse of HIH, knowing that they would come after his assets. He transferred this to his wife along with a $12 million Mosman mansion, a Lake Macquarie retreat valued at $5 million and a unit on the Gold Coast. And that's not the sum total of his wealth. These are just the four properties he transferred to his wife when he knew things were going bad, when everything was going pear-shaped. He has more wealth than this and he is retiring in luxury. Friends, the wicked still prosper. If you don't believe me still, let me just roll off a few more things that might come to, to mind, that might convince you. One tell the company that collapsed and the founders paid themselves $7 million just before it collapsed. Christopher Scase, Alan Bond and his sudden memory lapse to hold on to his goods. How about the global financial crisis? The greed from those American bank directors that plunged the whole world into a crisis. And this is just the, the business world. How about the political world? How about those who oppress? Names like Mugabe, Pol Pot, responsible for 2.7 million deaths of his own people. Saddam Hussein, Pinochet, another example. Ferdinand Marcos, who decided to go to Hawaii to retire after having embezzled billions of dollars from his country's money. Friends, the wicked continue to prosper in this day and age. But what about those who are pure in heart? Do they prosper? No, they don't. Now, I don't know how you feel when uh, Dad comes forward here often and brings us news from the Barnabas Fund, but this is the plight of those who are pure in heart. See, people in these countries, because of their faith, are denied some ordinary human rights, the right to work, the right to eat and access to, to water and even shelter. And more than that, they are beaten, they are tortured, some of them are hounded and chased down like dogs and murdered. No, friends, the pure in heart are plagued all day. They are punished every morning. That's not fair. It's not just. But thankfully, Asaph does not leave us here. We're not completely without hope. Let's read again from verse 16. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me till I entered the sanctuary of God. And then the wicked no longer prospered. No, that's not what it says. And then I was healed and was in good health and that was good enough. No, that's not what it says. Then I understood their final destiny. See, the only thing that changed here for Asaph, having gone to the sanctuary of God, was his perspective and nothing else. That might sound a bit glib, but you've got to consider here where Asaph was. He was in the temple of Solomon, which is one very impressive temple. And inside this temple, all around him, uh, is filled with images and representations of the invisible, immortal reality that's around us. There were cherubims carved into the walls. He had the relics there in front of him. And not just that, he had sacrifices being sacrificed day after day after day. So we have here images of the immortal and he's faced with immortality that we see through the death and sacrifices of animals. So it's no real wonder that he changes his perspective on things and gets a look at the bigger picture, the picture from eternity. 
And what he sees is a terrible end to the wicked. If you read from verse 18. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. The wicked are undone. They're gone in an instant. Their demise is made all the more complete by their contrast in life. You see, they had a life here that was free of burdens, both health burdens and financial burdens, yet they're on slippery ground. They exalted themselves to a position of authority, yet God has cast them down. They had the very best this life has to offer, yet God places them in ruin. While they were alive, they enjoyed ever-increasing wealth and prosperity. Yet God destroys them suddenly. They were violent to others. Yet they are swept away by terrors. They openly mocked God, but it is God who controls their final destiny. It's almost as if God puts his enemies in this position to make their condemnation complete. While those he loves, in the words of Spurgeon, he places in rougher but safer grounding. So it's also important to note here that Asaph is not talking about a gruesome death, a physical death here. For he said earlier in verse 4, if you remember from the King James Version, there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They don't suffer physically here, and we know that from today. Right? Those who are wicked don't necessarily suffer gruesome and horrible or painful deaths. No, what he's talking about here is far worse than just a gruesome death. Read on in verse 20. As a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. I don't know if you've ever had a dream that was so vivid and so real that really sparked within you some sort of emotion or heightened sense that actually aroused you from your slumber. And as soon as you awoke, you're still left with the emotion, you're still left with a, left with a heightened sense, but for the life of you, you can't remember what it was that caused it. Well, this is not quite what's going on here. You see, there's no brain limitations in, on God's behalf. God doesn't forget. God knows everything and sees everything. Now, what we have here is a conscious act on God's behalf. God chooses not to remember them. They're not worth remembering. They're completely out of mind, put aside. Now friends, let's not mince words here because this is the very state of hell itself. Complete and utter separation from God. Not just physical separation. Not just away from him and all the good things that he uh, provides. But to be never given a second thought. To have no hope of any change or salvation. Friends, this is hell, where you, you are removed from all the good things that God has. You are left alone in the dark, in pain, in torment, and without any hope of ever changing your situation. This is the fate that's awaiting the wicked. But if that is their end, then what end awaits Asaph? Let's read from verse 21. 
When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. See, Asaph's thoughts turn to himself here and he sees the state of his relationship with God. He was bitter and senseless and ignorant. He likens himself to an ox. Now an ox is not the kind of thing you usually want to have any sort of relationship with. In fact, they don't give you any response at all. In order to get them to do things, you usually have to put a ring through their nose to steer them in a direction and crack a whip at its back to get them moving. They only respond to base commands. They don't give you anything else. And this is the state of Asaph before God. He's no better than a brute beast. He's no better than an ox. There's no response on his behalf. And yet despite this truth about his standing, Asaph comes out with a truly amazing statement. In verse 23 he says, Yet I am always with you. Now hang on a minute. This is Asaph, right? This is Asaph who said his foot had almost slipped. This is Asaph who envied the prosperity of the wicked. He was at the point where he said, it's pointless, I'm doing it for no reason. He was ready to tell people publicly that this is the case. He even recognised that his own state before the Lord was that of a beast. And yet he says, I am always with you. Well, how? How is he always with God? He clarifies immediately in the the remaining three lines. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. You, you, you. See, it's not because of Asaph that he's always with God. It's because of God. It's God who keeps him always there. And see, we're not talking just another person or any normal relationship. We're talking God himself. God the immortal, the omnipotent, God who created everything. He is the one who makes sure that Asaph is always with him. <coughs> but how? Is he aloof? Is he standoffish? Is he from a distance? No, read again. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Now, I tried to think... <coughs> of an illustration for this, um, this sort of actions. And the best I could come up with was my young son, Zach, coming to church in the morning. He likes to run across the wall out the front here. When he does, he automatically holds out his hand. And usually I take his hand and lead him across. And so confident he is, he'll actually start running across the top of the wall. But sometimes I won't. Sometimes I deliberately not offer my hand. And he'll struggle a bit, but with encouragement and with guidance... He will continue and he will manage to do it. And when he gets to the end of the wall, he likes to climb up on the pillar and jump off, at which time I take his hand to make sure that no matter how little or how far he jumps, he doesn't hit the ground with much impact. He's always going to be safe. Now, I don't want to trivialise people's lives with a simple illustration here, but what I'm trying to get across is that this relationship of holding me, of guiding, of taking and leading, is likened to that of a father to a son. It's a personal, intimate, concerned, close relationship. This is what he has. And yet it's not just that that means he always has a relationship with God. So the key word here, always, doesn't quite come through in this translation in the following three statements. Probably better in King James Version, the second part of of verse 23, says, 
thou hast holden me by my right hand. You see, that phrase is used in the past tense. God has held you by the right hand in the past. You guide me with your counsels in the present tense. And afterward you will take me into glory is in the future tense. So I am always with you. Why? Because God is the God of yesterday, the God of today and the God of forever. So is it any wonder then when you consider who God is and the relationship that he enjoys with God on a personal, intimate uh, nature, always, is it any wonder that he continues in the next verse to say, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. Because friends, there's simply nothing that compares to knowing God in this way. That mansion on the water in Mosman, it doesn't even come close. How about having a luxury yacht and taking an extended holiday in the Whit Sundays? Sounds good, but no. Knowing God is more valuable. Knowing God is better than the most expensive sports car. It's more precious than fine jewellery or designer label clothes. It's better even than never having to go to work again. It's better than large screen televisions, new computers or whatever the latest gadget is. It's better than a few thousand dollars in your tax return. It's even better than things you can't put a price on. Your health. Let's read on in verse 26. Asaph says, My flesh and my heart may fail. Now here the heart means the physical muscle that's beating within his chest. We know Asaph is not in good health. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. Here heart meaning his inner self or his soul or his being and my portion forever. You see, God is his reason for living. It's his reason for going on, for enduring. And it's God himself that is his inheritance forever. The word portion here actually uh, is a, means when an inheritance was given to children here in this life and was split amongst them, that was their portion, their inheritance, what they had. See, God is Asaph's inheritance forever. So where are you this morning then? Are you frustrated with your lot in life? Are you envious of all the good things the wicked have? Then like Asaph, Consider where you are this morning, the sanctuary of God, and change your perspective on life. Now, granted, this is not as nice a church as this is. It doesn't exactly compare with the splendour of, of the temple that Asaph had uh, with all the, the gold articles and the cherubims and the, the splendour of that building. But we have something better. You see, Asaph would have to go to the temple and offer the same sacrifices day after day week after week, year after year, always knowing that those sacrifices weren't good enough, that no sooner had he made a sacrifice than he'd have to make another one. So all this was pointing to something better, something more complete, something that was yet to come, something that Asaph did not know what it was. But we do, because we can look back and we see Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, once for all time to pay the full price for sin and redeem us to himself. And in Jesus we also find a certain way to get that precious father-to-son relationship that Asaph was describing. If you turn with me quickly in, in Philippians 3, we'll see that Paul takes up this very argument. 
Uh, if you're on the, looking at a church, the Black Church Bible, you'll find it on page 1163. Now, reading from verse 7, Paul says, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Now, he's talking about the things he had done as a Hebrew, as his own standing for his own righteousness. And he continues in verse 8, What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish. That's how good they are in comparison. They're rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. How? Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. You see, it is through faith in Jesus that we have that right relationship with God. It is his righteousness in place of our guilt that sees God adopt us as his sons, as his children, even as co-heirs with Christ. Now, if you do not know God in the way Asaph does, if you're not found in Christ, as Paul proclaims here, This morning, don't settle for second best. The things of this world, which we can have in abundance, they don't compare to knowing God on that personal level. And what's more, they lead to hell. Take heed of Asaph's warning here. If you turn back in in Psalm 73 and verse 27, where Asaph says, Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. Friends, there's no ifs or buts here. God will exact judgment on those who remain unfaithful to him. Draw near to him through faith in his son while you still have time, even this morning. If you know him this morning, however, then rejoice. For what you have is more valuable and more precious than anything else this world can offer. That the very God of all things would make himself known to you on an intimate personal level as a father to a son. It's worth giving up all things. And when life here gets difficult, consider Asaph's conclusion in verse 28. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I would tell of all your deeds. It is good to be near God, to know that he is always there, always holding, always guiding and taking you into glory. If you're in trouble, if you're suffering, make him your refuge. Flee to him. You will not find him wanting. And then tell of others of his deeds. Tell others about the most precious thing in life the only thing that's worth living for, knowing God himself as our Heavenly Father. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father God, we come before you this morning and we worship and we praise you for you are not a God who is distant and aloof, but you are a God who is close to each one of us. You are a God who wants to know us in that personal, intimate way, despite our standing before you. 
And this is possible through the death of your Son and our Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, Lord, may we appreciate that even more. If we do not know you, may we consider our standing before you and change our perspective. And for us who know, Lord, may we continue to rejoice in all that you have given us. We ask this in your name. Amen.